Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Brian Singer, the CTO at Datalink Software, and we discuss having the patience to bring people along with your vision, how to overcome the resistance to change, and asking the five whys to get to the root cause of a problem. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. How did you get started in technology? Like, what's your earliest memory of technology? So, um, my dad was, uh, so my dad didn't go to college, um, ended up working for Blue Cross Blue Shield in like data processing uh, right out of school. And uh, there was a contest and he entered and he won an Apple IIe. Oh, cool. And so I must have been four. And so, my earliest memories, I always had a computer around, you know, it was old school green bar. We had a dual five and a quarter floppy. We even had a printer, a modem. It barely worked, but it was there. We started gaming and stuff like that. And I just, there was this game called micro league baseball that we played all the time. And I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world that this game allowed you to create your own team and put your own players on it. Uh, And I just wanted to figure out how. So I just started doing basic and calculating sports statistics. And it just kind of continued on from there. I mean, literally since an early age, this is all I ever wanted to do. And I've never changed my mind. I never thought about a different career. I never thought about a different major. Um, I come to work and I love what I do every day. So you write these programs, you fall in love with technology. Then you go, did you do any college at all? Oh yeah. Um, so, you know, Back when I was in high school, there wasn't a whole lot of programming classes. There was, there was basic classes. We had a Pascal class. Nobody was really doing C or Java. Um, there wasn't really any web pages back then, so none of that stuff. Um, I went to Bowling Green. I was a computer science major. You know, we did hardcore object-oriented type of stuff. So real, real drill down, old school VI editor, C plus plus. We built, we built an assembler in C. Got heavy into data structures, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, just kept pushing through. I, but there, I really loved messing with data. We started to do a lot of data-driven software development. And I just loved the manipulation of data through code. And so that's when I, I started to have fun. And, and my advisor, my last semester, my advisor was actually the teacher and I just started to do the assignments as soon as we got them. And he used mine as the, as the master copy. So he just kept giving me all in advance and I kept doing them. And we would, we would grade off of what I wrote. So it was pretty fun. Nice. So you get out of college and then where do you go from there? Consulting. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I, did, I did a year. <laughs> I did a year where I allowed people to make a ton of money off of me and my skills and... Uh, and I didn't see any of it. <laughs> but the coolest thing about consulting was we understood the core fundamentals, like you know, basic premises of object-oriented development, uh, how to solve problems with code. And with the consulting world, it was a matter of going to solve a problem in a different technology. And, and my first gig was working for Motorola based out of, um, outside of Chicago. And we had to rewrite an inventory management system for them. 
It was an Oracle Forms heavy key-driven management system for their international distribution center, and they wanted to go wireless. And, and so having done data-related work before, the consulting firm assumed that I could do PLSQL stuff and assumed that I could do Perl and said, hey, you're an expert, go out. We'll bill you at 250 bucks an hour, obviously before the dot-com bust, and and go have fun. It was a it was a three-month project. And so we we developed a software on the barcode scanners that you typically see in the grocery stores as they're looking to refill inventory, and then built a bunch of PLSQL behind it to generate an inventory management system on a wireless basis. So, you know, right away, three months, nailed the project immediately. When it was done, felt that we could do a lot of stuff better. <laughs> I wanted to redo half of the stuff. Um, but the coolest aspect of that was uh, when we brought new items into the warehouse, we barcoded them. And Zebra barcode printers, anybody who's done barcodes probably worked with those. They have internal software and the warehouse wanted to do a three-dimension in terms of how they locate all of their uh, packages. And the software out of the box only did two dimensions. So I had to hack the software to come up with a, a third dimension and enable their warehouse to be managed the way that they wanted to do. And that was, a, that was a blast. So much fun. That's amazing. And then I, I saw on your, on your, well, I also remember, forget me seeing on your, on your notes, uh, when we hung out <laughs> and we had lunch, you were talking about Amazon, right? Yes. So how did you end up at Amazon? So fast forward a few years after a couple startups and, and doing a lot of um, web development for AAA, Amazon comes recruiting. I thought it was a joke, to be honest with you at first. It was the most archaic, cryptic email I ever seen. And the formatting was all off and I just blew it off a few times. But you know, when I confirmed that it was legitimately Amazon, I was intrigued, uh, to say the least. So I flew out, went through the normal grueling Amazon interview. I was probably really naive and foolish. I didn't look it up before I went out because I was just kind of like, eh, they'll never hire me. And I'm not I'm only going out to Seattle just to get the experience. I'm not I'm not gonna pursue this. And so you go through the process and it's intense, but it's fun. Like I as soon as I was done that day, I was exhausted, but I was like, damn, I want this job. <laughs> I really want to work here because it was just smart people who wanted to get stuff done. And so I ended up getting the job and, and, and spent uh, two and a half years out in Seattle running development team for um, what was considered seller experience. So we, we handled like internal applications that all the call centers across the world used. And throughout that, got a lot of good experience, did a lot of international type of um, scale and again, lots of uh, new technologies, but we built everything. There was even when we had a good buy option, it was why? Why should we buy this? Even if we we're going to spend 100k this year, we could save that 100k next year. Let's just hire someone to do it. And so that was a lot of fun. So it, it puts you in a position where you've got to get even more creative. You have to think big, which is one of their leadership principles, uh, and to really determine how it is we can leverage tools that we have and solve those problems um, in perpetuity as opposed to having to pay licensing fees. So that was cool. And then um, I got to open an office, an engineering office for them. And I took over the the global help platform, which was really cool because that was something that pretty much everybody who's ever gone to Amazon has clicked help. Um, And so my tagline was, hey, if you clicked help, you use my services. (laughs) Nice. And then so, so you go right from Amazon to Datalink then? No. Well, I, I've done two stints at Amazon. So I'm a boomerang. 
And you know, it's funny when I when I went to Amazon, I thought I'd never leave. And when they when Amazon decided to open up an office in Detroit, uh, they moved me back to Detroit. I opened the office, and I got literally on day one. United Health Group started to recruit me. They had a startup that they had funded in the Detroit area that was all UX and mobile first approach to development. And they were really driven by making sure that uh, the client was taken care of and also that the patient was healthy. And I kind of had an epiphany and I, I was looking at like my career and you know, I'd done insurance, I'd done a financial exchange, I'd done a couple startups. And I was like, Ma, it would be really cool if I could use my skills to really help people. I help people buy stuff on Amazon, but it would be nice to actually translate that into, you know, a direct link to Medicaid, Medicare, and even you and I, because I had by that time I'd had two kids. And if you've had kids and you've gone through the hospital and you've seen all the redundancy in that, it's such a waste. Oh, like yeah. it's it's an opportunity galore in terms of like a simplified workflow, user experience, all data-driven um, and checks and balances in place. So I, I took that opportunity and it was, a, it was a really good time. When I joined, it was just a small six-person team and it was about building out these prototypes. The project name was Strawberry on the original one, but it was, it was basically about giving a holistic view to one's health without having to bounce around to all these different portals and such, which, you know, five, six years ago, that was the way we all managed our health, you know, depending on who your payer was for health or life insurance or dental or pharmacy. It was just a mess. And so I, I really wanted to stay in the healthcare industry. And the only reason I ultimately decided to leave United Health was because there was this massive merger between Optum, their their services arm, and, and like the internal IT organization. And it was just this very long drawn out shakeout in terms of reorganizing reorganizing and restructuring. And I wasn't able to stay with the startup company that uh, that I that I went there for. Um, but I stayed in healthcare uh, and I started my own business. I just started to help advise other healthcare firms like uh, a PBM, Delta Dental. And ultimately, I decided to go back to Amazon because I just wanted the speed. Like, you know, we all develop when you're, you're hands on keyboard, you're never worried about requirements per se. You know, you're, you're worried about what's the problem and what does it look like when it's done. And, you know, I, I wanted to get back to the speed and, and the whole premise being taking care of the end user, making sure that their experience is better, that they're able to get their needs served. And so that's why I ultimately went back to Amazon for a second stint, um, which was about a year and a half before Datalink. Yeah. Nice. And then you get pulled into Datalink through friends or? Yeah. So I'm, yeah. Network's important. You you know this. You <laughs> go on your podcast, the website. You've got quite the network, my friend. <laughs> but it's super important. And um, not only that, but the the folks who gave me time and mentored me over the last you know twenty years, uh, I stayed in touch with all of them. They've all given me really important advice. Going back to literally my first job and then the, my first startup, I still talk to them all. And uh, I kept monthly calls with with some of them, quarterly calls with others. And there was one; it was just perfect timing. He had, you know, just been asked to join a board for this new uh, company that this uh, PE firm was investing in. And they said they, that uh, as part of their diligence, they needed a CTO. And he told them that there was only one guy he knew that could do it, and it happened to be me. 
And, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, I'm having a good time over here. I'm really not looking to change. But man, it's a really cool opportunity. Uh, And I look at it too as, can I be valuable? That's important to me. I want to make sure that whenever I take a gig, it's something that I bring value to. And uh, I'm not just going there for, you know, the, the rainbows and unicorns, the potential sale of the company or anything like that. To me, getting up every morning, doesn't, that doesn't fulfill me. Getting up every morning to where I'm going to provide value and help other people uh, achieve success, that's super important to me. And that's really motivating. Uh, and the more and more I talk to the equity firm, the rest of the board, the CEO of the company, the more I realize that there's a lot of synergies here where I truly believe I can help them out um, in terms of kind of the balance between you know, correcting some of the technical debt that they uh, have incurred over the years, but also kind of developing new software and really driving towards a product strategy. So yeah, I've been here about nine months now, actually. So coming into that, because the PE firm identified it during due diligence, like we need a CTO, you come mm-hmm. into that, there's going to be a lot of change that happens just naturally because they, they identified the need, which means things weren't happening, which means change would, would occur. Right. Um, how do you overcome like resistance to change? That's a really great question. And it's something that you face all the time. And no matter, I, I would say no matter what your level is, um, it, whether you're an individual contributor or a leader coming in, but especially a leader coming into the picture where outside forces are really the ones driving the need for that hire. So before I started, I made it a point to have conversations with all the folks that would be my peers to kind of just get their feeling on where the company was at, what are some of the things that they did real, that were really great? What are some of the areas where they're not um, so great? That would help me kind of just put together my, my mindset and roadmap in terms of people process tech, which are the areas that I need to focus on right away. And so I had a lot of dialogue pre. I also had the opportunity to attend and participate in a board meeting before I officially got hired. And, and that was a really telling sign because... You and I both know when you're talking to boards, there's it's full transparency. It's very honest discussion. So you know what you may have gotten in terms of a little uh, a little flubbery or white lies and and just one-on-one conversations, you're going to get the reality. So I used that to my advantage, and it was about a week before I joined, and that helped me put together at least a playbook for myself on day one. Here's what I want to approach. But I started with the people. The tech is one side of it. I, I'm I'm big on the people aspect of it and think honestly, the more I do this, the more I realize that people are more important than tech. And you have to understand where people's strengths and weaknesses are, but also learn about the organization as a whole and what areas across the organization are a challenge. So I literally had a one-on-one with everybody at Datalink. And I came up with some common denominators of challenges. And it was mainly around communication and education. We we're a small company. We should communicate face-to-face, walking around the office. But we're a little bit of keyboard warriors. We love our Slack. We love our email. Um, and, and so we were losing a lot in translation. And from that, I just kind of put together this really overarching uh, gap analysis of all the areas that we as leadership could work together so that the technology becomes an enabler to the, the company's success, not an inhibitor or uh, a bottleneck, which... I would say in many ways it is, uh, or it was. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why we had such a large, a large staff in certain areas and stuff like that. So 
it helps you just to be able to put together all of those uh, different components and realize what's the priority. And here it was more minor processes that really needed to be uh, corrected so that the technology could end up getting the right resourcing and requirements to enable the scale that we really wanted to achieve. Right. And then once you get that all sort of worked out, then when great opportunity comes around, like this new new project, this new exactly. area, you have a solid foundation in order to to build upon that. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and the big thing too is convincing and influencing, right? You got to change is really hard. Anything that you're introducing, whether it's the people or the tech, but probably more process than anything, it's going to be met with some hesitancy. And it's about let's deliver something. So, you know, choose something that's, I wouldn't say low hanging fruit, but definitely something that's quick, but impactful to, to help uh, get that confidence from all of your peers in the company and, and to show that what you can do if you, you know, work together and get the, the right deliverables out. So we, we did a couple of those things as well. That, that way we were able to move forward and start building new as opposed to kind of fitting into the old ways. Yeah, as I'm as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that the most difficult thing in life is not necessarily knowing what to do. It's the focus and the persistence to keep at it. Asking the right questions. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's it, honestly it's really true. And and you know, I go back to uh, honestly, I, I have them right here. I go back to the Amazon leadership principles all the time because they're really good. Uh, guidelines that help you kind of just stay focused. And it's not one of the leadership principles, but it's something we all do. And it's it's somewhat juvenile, but it works. And that's the five whys. Helping other people along the process just by asking why and then helping them realize the root cause of situations or essentially allowing them to come up with the idea to solve the problem by asking all of those questions that's super impactful too, because now you're not just a, a dictator coming in and saying, this is how I do things. This is my experience. Don't worry about yours. And you're basically walking them through their own decision-making process. And then on the out, out end or the outbound, they've made their own decision, which, oh, by the way, happens to be something that'll help the company. So that's been a lot of fun as well. I've been working, I work on that quite a bit. Like you want to tell them because you know from your experience you want to be like this, but then you have to you have to stop in your mind. You have to say what's where what is the question that I can ask that will allow them to see what I see. Yes, and it's funny you say that. I, Fifteen years I've been doing this, and and Amazon had great coaching and development classes, and it's still hard. Um, and it's it's because because I'm a problem solver and. One of it, one of my faults, one of my, my areas of weakness, is that I can I see the problem and I already know the solution, and so bringing other people along to really walk them through my thought process and how I ultimately got to that solution, it's something that will I think always be a challenge for me. But one one of the things that I do for for my own good is when I get myself in that situation, I just spit out I know what I would do, but you're not me. So let's walk through this. And it works with a lot of people, especially, especially the person on the other end who just wants to learn and is super coachable. I've got two of them here and I absolutely enjoy having one-on-ones with them because we solve problems in that hour. It's not a wasted time. And it's like paying it forward for all the people that did it for me. But then there's, there's always those, those folks who just kind of can't walk it, right? They're just so used to either reacting or just doing the quick fix that they can't really walk through, you know, what is a 
scalable, you know, agnostic solution that will help others as well as them. So it's, it's, man, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you've got to reach this certain size of energy of like number of people who do it the right way. And that gravity will then suck everyone else in. But as you start collecting those so people, true. yeah, that's the hard part. So true. And, and when I do my, um, I, every, by, uh, every other week I have a meeting with uh, all my directs. And when I have a good outcome of those sessions, I always ask that person, hey, it's a great example. It's something to share. Um, there's a lot we both learned about this situation, but there's all your peers. They could learn exactly what, what happened here. And we kind of went through that today, actually. There was, there was a lot of churn over the last couple of days about a couple of last-minute requirements and an unnecessary change to scope and stuff like that. So we walked through all these different options of how we could have better handled that, how, who we could have talked to and all that. And you know, just by sharing that experience and walking through things, you get a lot more done. Uh, and uh, I try and use the examples that are you know, within the boundaries and the scope of what we do to help coach other people. Because when, it, when it's something that matters or it's something that you can relate to inside, it, it's something that people can attach to and, and learn from a lot quicker. Yeah, there's... I was talking with this guy. We, I do these like micro calls, similar to how we had lunch, where we just kind of hang yeah. out, talk, whatever. So I do the sure. micro calls. And this week I had one with this guy who's um, CTO and co-founder of this company called Trip Actions. And okay. they're like corporate travel. They make corporate travel easier. That's like okay. what I took from it. But the interesting thing about them is he's been listening to the show for a while. And like a year and a half ago, they had 50 people. And today they have 700. Holy God. Yeah, I know. And he's been <laughs> listening to the show since. And he's going to come on and share and talk. But one of the interesting things when we... Um, he's Israeli. And one of the things... And he, he's like very proud of being Israeli too. So it's like really yeah, cool, right? Awesome. <laughs> um, and their culture is different. He was explaining all this stuff about how direct they are and mm -hmm. very unique, but they have this concept in their culture that they took from an Israeli Air Force pilot. And apparently in the Israeli Air Force, you only need like 230 hours of flight time to qualify like in, in that capacity. But in every other Air Force in the world, it's like four or 500 hours. And so they were saying, what's the difference? And the difference that the point of that like section was the difference is that after every flight, they stand up, no matter what their rank or what their experience, they stand up after every flight and they do like a review, like a retro, like a mm -hmm. statement of how it went and yeah. what they could improve, what went right, what didn't go right. And it doesn't matter. No one's exempt from this. And what that does is the act of reviewing after every single flight improves you faster. It just gets them qualified better versus doing a bunch of flights and reviewing like quarterly or something like that. Well, it's, it's the short-term memory, right? And it's, it's the basic concept of diving deep. You know, I'll, the same with my kids. My, I've, my youngest, I can't find my blanket. He won't search around the house. He just wants everybody to give it to him. And, you know, my oldest, he'll have a problem and he dives in and he solves it and he'll never have that problem again. And so like brute cause analysis, which is essentially, you know, a technical version of that, um, super important. Uh, and, you know, if you don't do that, if you're a leader and, you, and your, your company doesn't do that, I would absolutely introduce it. Even if it's something small, it's, and again, it's not about, 
who did what. It's not about the person. It's not about the mistake. It's about the learning opportunity. In fact, I, I've kind of shied away from calling things mistakes and instead of calling them learning opportunities so that we just don't make those mistakes again. And I've had some painful ones, man. <laughs> so there, there's, there's some that, again, like the successes, uh, I pretty much forget about those. But I've had a couple of painful uh, root cause analysis uh, uh, opportunities that were not fun. Uh, one at Amazon and one with a startup where one of my guys deleted the entire production database. So was, <laughs> I've, I've been through some of the worst stuff. So, you know, and plus it's an empowerment, right? You got young people, like I, I have a, uh, a mix of senior and, and college grads and there's nothing more, uh, more empowering to a, a young person who's kind of in their first gig using their skills for the first time to just kind of allow them to make a mistake, right? It's not go to lead a production database and it's not, you know, move fast, break things. It's about try. Don't, don't feel like you get to a fork in the road and you can't decide just because you haven't had 20 years experience. Pull, pull the facts in, look at the North Star, where you're supposed to be going and eliminate the ambiguity based off of your own problem solving skills. And you'll be able to, you know, some of those choices won't work. A lot of them will. Uh, and that builds confidence, which is ultimately what ends up building those senior level uh, engineers. Yeah. When the confidence and the experience go hand in hand, that's really useful. Like people, I was very shy, very quiet, very introverted. And it takes, for me, it takes mastery to get confidence. Like I, my confidence is always on like a serious trail, like way far behind my actual experience. And that's because I, I sort of have to like explore everything, figure out, you know, where everyone is. And then I start to get confidence and, oh, yeah, like I'm sure. doing things like the top people. And then that's, I don't know what that was about. I don't know why I mentioned that. But. <laughs> but, well, no, I think, but uh, I, I would relate it to, I think a lot of us are in these roles because we are insecure in certain areas and that is the constant challenge. And so you, you can't get to these levels and, and deal with all this ambiguity and different, different personalities without loving the challenge. There's a great book. It's called The Obstacles Away. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it. No, I haven't. What is it called? It's, it's The Obstacles the Way. Um, and it's it, the premise is that nothing worth achieving is easy. It's it's always there's always going to be a fork in the road. There's always going to be a bottleneck. There's always going to be opportunities where you got to lean on other people. You can't do everything yourself. And and the sooner you get to that point where you can start trusting other people, the more impactful you are. Um, I learned that early in my career around hiring. When I first became a leader, I needed to hire a .NET engineer. And the first person I interviewed was just lights out. Perfect. Great personality. Culture-wise, was going to fit. Technical skills were off the charts. He wanted 10 grand more than me. And I was like offended. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> you know, I've worked hard to get in this position and I don't want you to make more money than me. And I had a really good director at the time and he said, you can keep interviewing. And I did. And, you know, we weren't seeing this any, anywhere near the candidates. And he came back and circled around. He's like, why won't you hire him? Uh, and told him why. And he just basically laid it out on the line. He's like, is he going to get this work done? I said, of course. I have almost confidence in it. And if he gets his work done, are you going to achieve your goals? And yes, of course. And he said, and if you achieve your goals, are you going to be rewarded? And it's like, okay, yes, I am. Which means promotion and money, right? So forget about the the short term and think about the big picture and the long term. I hired the guy. 
He did everything that we wanted him to do. He delivered. He made his customers happy. I got promoted. I got more money. And oh, by the way, he's a senior director over at the Mercantile Exchange now, and, and he's still a good friend. So um, that was a great humbling experience very early on in my career. I find it interesting how, like, with leaders, like so few, like we. Even when we move into leader, we still have that feeling for like wanting to do the individual contributor work. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know how long it's going to take me for it to go away or if it ever goes away. It won't. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, my, my um, like Florida funders, the investment group was telling me this. They're like explaining it to me. They're like, yeah, this is probably never going to go away. You're always going to fight it. And I was like, okay, like let's get better at fighting it. But yeah, as, as you can hire great people, it, it messes with you. Like, cause you, you stop stressing because like they're owning that area, but you have to hand it off and then they're doing good. And then it's like, you get some confidence and then you have to equally replace your time. It's like stealing the statue in the yes. movie, steal it, right? You have to yes. quickly replace it with something of equal value before the sensor notices. <laughs> no, for a hundred percent, man. And believe me, um, I, a long time ago, I worked with this gentleman by the name of Richard Keller. He was one of the, the leaders for this startup that I was working with. And, and Rich had been the CIO of Nissan, Whirlpool, and the Chicago Public Schools. And it, he was just like this Jedi master. He was so calm and collected, and I just couldn't believe it. And, and he taught me a lot of that as well. He, he taught me the, the, the basic fundamental that I left with him was a CIO or CTO's role, it's very short term. You have to go in it with a goal, and you you have to focus on you you you're helping the company get to a certain point. And in order to do that, you also have to build a leadership team that can succeed you, right? As soon as you move on, that's your goal. You're you're there to build that team, get the functionality or, or scaling, whatever it is that the problem is that you're there to solve and then move on. And that's happened to me in a couple of instances where it happened a lot sooner than I thought it would. And it's a weird, eerie feeling, right? And you're like, well, I'm not sure I have anything to do anymore because we achieve the technical goals. You've got the leadership that you need in order to, to continue this on without my day-to-day. And it's kind of, like I said, it's a weird feeling because then you're, you don't know what to do. And with me in particular... I have to have many things on my plate. If I have one thing to do, I'm bored. I, I don't want to... You can't cycle to the next thing. No, exa- exactly. It's not about multitasking. It's about different problems, keeping my mind always on edge. You know, uh, And that's why I still like to get into all different technologies. Going from AWS, now we're doing Azure. Going from you know the C++ and Java world, now we're doing .NET. Going from like the React world to back to Angular and all this other stuff, like that's fun for me because you know the the syntax is one aspect, but you, it just shows you how you can solve business problems in a bunch of different verticals with a bunch of different technology. And it's not really the tech or the syntax that matters. It's about how you think about performance and the customer and all that kind of stuff. So it, I don't think it will ever go away. I've I've always said, yeah, I want to retire early, but 
I don't think I could retire. I don't know. Yeah. I would definitely do something else. <laughs> I, I have a hard time taking extended vacations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. retire. It's like, yeah, I just did an international trip a couple of weeks ago and, and the CEO was like, go on vacation. And I was checking email and I was answering stuff and he's like, go on vacation. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I, I don't know how to not stay connected. I'm going to start another company if you disconnect me too far. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll just create work for myself. Like, that's, yes. That's what yes. I do. Hey, you mentioned Azure. You guys moving to Azure. Uh, do you know Jeff Fudge locally? Yeah, so I've uh, I, I wouldn't say I know him very well, but yeah, um, I've gone to a couple of Jeff's groups, uh, okay. and yeah, uh, and and then I've gotten involved in a couple of the other areas here. So Tampa Tech, I stay connected with the groups here. I stay connected with a lot of folks back in Detroit and Seattle. And that's why I stay connected with you know all the mentors and, and leaders that I've had in the past as well. It's uh, it's time consuming, but it's very valuable. Keeps me sane. Yeah. And it's part of the whole network building. Like the mm-hmm. worst time to build a network is when you need one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to happen. I mean, even when uh, a great example is when I, when I mentioned I started my own company, I, I called as soon as I started, I incorporated on like a Tuesday and I reached out to like a dozen people in my network. I had a meeting, uh, I had beers the next day with a former network colleague who was doing contract work for a former company. And he was now the CIO at Delta Dental of Michigan. And we just had a beer and he was starting to lay out all these problems. And I just started to answer all of his questions. Didn't realize it was kind of like an interview as to whether or not you know, my services could be beneficial to him. And literally within 35 minutes at the end of the conversation, he starts pulling out his, his iPhone, starts doing calculation. And he's like, I'll give you $35,000 a month to go do this. And I was like, that sounds feasible. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it it was all about the network. And and I think when we're young, we kind of don't want it to be that way. Right. <laughs> At least my ego was like, no, I want to get this myself. But I don't feel like I'm leaning on people anymore. I feel like it's just a community where we're all helping each other solve our problems. And you trust people. So you always want to go into these positions where you can lean on people you trust to help you solve these issues. Yeah. And then when those opportunities come up, people know you. So like the biggest thing that was frustrating me was I'd see all these deals happen. You see them on Crunchbase, all these people doing this technology. I'd look at the tech, I'd be like, yeah, it's okay. Like, how are they doing this? And I'd like, look at the person's GitHub, be like, the code's like pretty average. Like, it's all right. It's not phenomenal, but it's like, okay. I'm like, how are they doing this? And I'm like, and then I start digging into them and I find out they're just like, they're social. They know yeah. a lot of people and they have skill. Like they're not horrible. They're like average skill, but they know yep. people. And then those individuals are like, oh, you got to use this person. I guarantee they will vouch for them. They're like this, that's how relationships work. Yep. Like I know that guy, he's brilliant at that. And tech, there's so much non-tech. I think that's the important thing. Like, there's so many relationships in your life of people that are like not technical that like it's, you know, 60 to 80% that are like yeah. not engineering technical, but like when you ground yourself with it, you imagine everyone can do this stuff, but those people who can't do it at all, they think you're brilliant. Like, yeah. like <laughs> my wife still fire. doesn't know what I do. <laughs> Mine either. My, my wife still hasn't read my book. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like I, 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 my wife had some friends over a couple of weeks ago and they're like, so what is it that you do? And, and my wife jumped in and she's like, I just tell them you do stuff with computers. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. But no, you're, you're totally right. I mean, there's a, so I'll, I'll use Detroit again as an example. Detroit's a big city, but it's a small town. That's, that was always my saying. Everybody in Detroit knows each other. And, you know, I've had 
you know, several opportunities where I've literally lifted and shifted teams. There's, in fact, there's two guys here who work for me now at Datalink. This is the third and fourth time I've hired them because they get they get it done. And and they're people like uh, this one guy, his, his nickname is Shugs. Um, Shugs is one of those guys who's like, what do you need me to do? I'll do anything. You need me to be hands-on keyboard. You need me to be a scrum master, a product owner, dev manager, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm your guy. I'm in. And, and those are the people that you just want all the time, right? And you kind of made a point that I, I wanted to go back to. And that was as you move toward, towards trying to influence the non-tech, right? Because every company is becoming a tech company, whether they want to or not. And a lot of these companies are not led by traditional tech folks they've you know kind of to your point they've stumbled upon a really good idea that solves a problem and they may or may not be executing at the level you would or the level of the people that we know would but they've got a really good product and so now it's kind of like bringing those two together helping them understand what it means to have a product and then you know leveraging that as your you know your foot in the door to then scaling up your tech and that's really important now yeah if i were to look for opportunity now like if i were out there looking for something i would look for a company that's like maybe getting a lot of traction maybe around like 60 to 100 people because i know what they're experiencing and then yep. i i know like i could walk and knock on their door and be like i could help you with a b c and d and they're just like sitting there like oh my god that's like exactly what i'm thinking about 24 7 it's like yeah okay and then Right, they like exactly want exactly. the person to walk to the door, knowing what your problem is and how they can help, um, because those companies consistently grow to like three to five hundred people, and so you negotiate it smart on the business end, where you just take a normal salary and you get some upside on the equity. You hang out, you do a great job getting their system stable for three years, and now they're at five hundred people, and you've helped. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. It's funny that you say that because when I walked in here and I've walked in some other places, I think everybody has that, oh no, what's this person going to say? Are you going to call my baby ugly? <laughs> and just by having all those one-on-ones that I was telling you about, I figured I figured most of the technical gaps without ever looking at a piece of code, without ever looking at an architectural diagram. And so when I started to meet with the actual tech team, I just basically said, look, been here a week and a half, let me lay out my theories. And yeah, it kind of was a little bit arrogant, but I knew I knew I was right because I this is like the 10th time I've seen this problem. And it was right in my wheelhouse to your point around, I can help you. This is perfect. This is how we can help. And you know, bringing people back along, especially folks who've been in, in a, an organization that's maybe stagnant for a while and just kind of re-energizing them to, to go think about the days, uh, how they were the, the guy on the keyboard with the passion of solving the world's problems and like giving them the keys back to go ahead and like do that again at, at, the, at the scale that the company's now at. That's actually rewarding too. And I see, I'm seeing a lot of that here. So it's a lot of fun to do that. I'm also thinking about what you're what you're talking about going into that company, and then uh, tell me if this one's uh, right. So, like, because I'm trying to, I'm just trying to share what I'm learning, like <laughs> what I'm learning, and then because you've got more experience than me with this. So, like, at first, I was like very distracted by the explosions, the things that would go wrong. Like, so mm. you know, you get in there, maybe a key person leaves, or like something bad happens, or whatever it is, and you're like, oh my god, my world's dying. It takes a hundred, it takes all your focus from all the balance, and then you like hyper focus on this. It gets ten times bigger, mm-hmm. and now I'm more like walking through, walking through it, and be like, boom, oh, there's an explosion. We just run the uh, post explosion process. They happen. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the ex- they happen. Yeah, no, totally. It's happened here several times, and 
there is the tendency to react to the explosion. And I'm more about slowing it down. Like, you know, help me understand what's going on. You know, reading reading the book essentially and just like playing it back and, and not trying to react. I think a big part of that too is, you know, when you have an explosion, really understanding what you need to do. So let's just say that your production goes down, right? Your production system goes down. The, the most important thing is to get your customers back up. But as a technician, to understand root cause, you also got to collect as much data as possible so that you can analyze it after your customers are back up. And you know, it's something basic for you and I, but when you walk into a, a place and everybody gets an analysis paralysis, the next thing you know, you're down for an hour and a half and sure, the explosion happens. So yeah, you, you definitely do. I used to always do that. Um, problem, massive anxiety. Like either that or you have the superhero complex. You're like, yeah, I kind of want it to go bad because I want to be the guy that solves the problem. But every day, <laughs> I, I have problems every day. <laughs> I'd, I'd be popping Xanax left and right if I continued to do that. And so it's really just like, again, trusting other people, empowering my next level leadership to actually take on some of those accountabilities and responsibilities. Uh, perfect example is here when I started, our data team was pretty underinvested, and I really wanted to hire someone that could prioritize running the data team on a day-to-day basis. And from a budgetary standpoint, given some of the other investments we were going to make, you know, we collectively decided not to do that. We're like, let's try and hire the people that are going to be more hands-on keyboard, and you know, see if we can develop a leader who's here, all that kind of stuff. And you know, we we very quickly started to realize that this this wasn't something that we could short change. We had to get this leader on. And so we hired that person and it's literally night and day and bringing him in and just saying, you've got this. I, you're empowered. You come to me whenever you need me. Don't worry about needing air cover. You've got it from me. Don't worry about autonomy or micromanaging. I'm not going to be in your face. I totally trust that you're going to get this stuff done. And that helps me to focus kind of on the macro issues, which to me, you know, why I'm here is more on how do I get back to defining a product, right? How do I build that strategy with our product team? How do I enable the scale in the software and, and the data architectures that will eliminate you know, tech or software development being a long pull to onboarding new clients? And so that's a relief, man. Like it's, it's unbelievable to be able to have those people that you trust and not have to worry about the explosions on a day-to-day basis. Right. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I was listening to Elon Musk. And he was talking about, you know, like it being super difficult and staring into the abyss and eating glass and like all that, all that good stuff. And then I was also thinking about like stress being an interesting signal to you that like the person that you've delegated to is not doing it correctly. So like if there's been times where I delegate and like, I feel this sense of relief and like, it's just the person just takes control and like runs with it and there's confidence and everything's amazing there. And then there's yeah. times where like I delegate it and they, they keep pushing it back to me. Like, well, what yep. do I do next? And I'm like, and then it takes me, it takes me a minute. It takes me a minute to realize like, why am I stressing out? Like, why am I sitting here planning this out? Like if I had someone who had my level of knowledge in this area, they wouldn't need me to do this. Yeah. And then I realized yeah. I don't have the right person. Yep. Yep. And and sometimes that's a that's a really hard thing to realize. Not only that, but especially if you've hired that person, sometimes there's a little bit too much pride or uh, an unwillingness to admit that you were wrong. And I I've made desperate hires in my past, and and they've every desperate hire's backfired. 
every one of them. And so when, when you're starting to look at not, you use that example as a desperate hire the same way as you use it as a desperate body in a seat, yeah. right? <laughs> yes, you have someone in that role, but are they taking work away from you, meaning they're doing their job? Or are they causing you anxiety or adding more work to your plate or causing tension across the rest of your, your direct reports and staff or the, the uh, lower level folks? Um, and you really got to manage that out. It, it just happens everywhere, no matter, no matter the company, small or large. Um, it's just one of those things where you, you've got to make sure you got the right people. And I had, uh, I had a couple mentors at Amazon where I'd go and I'd kind of do the SBI, you know, situation, behavior, intent. And I, re- I just remember, you know, one of the, uh, one of the sessions, she just looked back at me and she said, do you think you have the right person in that role? <laughs> you sound awfully stressed about whether or not this stuff is going to get done. And it was really eye-opening because I hadn't even gone there, right? I hadn't even wanted to go there. I think it was the, you know, the whole people aspect of it and not wanting to make sure or you know, not wanting to hurt a person, but then realizing at the end of the day, you're here to get stuff done. And if, if people aren't delivering, you've, one, you've got to coach them through it and get them on the right path, or you've, you've got to make the, the difficult decision to actually get the right person in that role. That's the hard part. Like mm-hmm. that's like the hard human part. It's hard to yeah. talk about. Like I always want to get experience and stuff. But it's always a tough one to talk about even in interviews. But mm-hmm. the, the positive spin that I've made up, like I engineered a perspective. So, <laughs> <laughs> the perspective I engineered is it took me a lot of like messing up to figure out how to get, get it right. And so those, like, I think every person has to go through so much like getting fired or not being a part of the project or being the least cool person on the team or being the least valuable person. You have to go through that acknowledgement enough to get sick of it in order to have the energy to say, this time's going to be different. Absolutely. I mean, failure is like the greatest motivator. You don't ever want to go through that stuff again. You don't want to go through a missed deadline. You don't want to go through a production malfunction. You don't want to go through hiring the wrong person for the role that's at your your company or or the software back several months. Like it's a huge, it, it's a huge motivator. Um, you know, I'll go back to the the production outages I talked about at Amazon. We do COE. It's a correction of errors. My entire North American fleet went down. I only had one seven one the entire time I was at Amazon. Uh, and you know, my fleet supported everybody in contact centers. So imagine sending an email or requesting a chat or, you know, having issues with a purchase or being a seller on the platform and not being able to get a response from an agent. That was my problem. The, our code was spaghetti code. We had, uh, we had a monolith of a service. So it was really hard to troubleshoot where it was. But what we failed on was we saw the sub two come in and it was quickly a sub one and everything just went out. I mean, literally like rolling blackout. And we just got knee deep in it. What's going on? What's doing all this? And we forgot about the customer. So we never brought all... We didn't bring all but one of the host back up so that we could continue to troubleshoot. And as part of the, the COE process, you had to drill into the five whys. My COE was 17 pages long. <laughs> And it was painful uh, and it had all the metrics. I had it down to the cent what it cost Amazon to be out, right? How many people were sitting there idle? And I, I always tell people that story because it's a, it's a lesson you can learn and it was easily solvable. I could have avoided that whole 
whole problem if I had just thought about the customer first. And, and here's the irony of it. When I went back to Amazon, I met with one of my former engineers who was now a dev manager of my former team. And I said, you remember that COE? And he goes, oh yeah, it's part of my, it's, it's part of my bootcamp for onboarding new engineers. <laughs> we, we make them read through it and, and, and tell them that that's not what you want to do. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. My legacy at Amazon said it's in that, that, that dumb COE, but uh, at least it's other people something, right? But think about this. Think about that COE going from a cost to an investment in like the future. Like All these people being trained on that all now mm-hmm. have this knowledge, which will prevent future bigger issues from occurring. Well, it was also a precursor. So Amazon being data-driven, um, I'd inherited a really poor, uh, a poor performing software um, platform. And we were, we were thinking about it from the corporate standpoint. It's highly latent. Well, what does that mean? You know, what did it mean to the customer? And we figured out that the latency was actually an advantage to the end user because they would go through all these other tools that existed and actually get all, this, all these other data points. So by the time a page loaded, they had this plethora of information that they could actually solve the problem. And then as we continued to dive into this and start to solve the problems, we started to visualize and, and raise the visibility of why we needed to invest in the, the, the refactoring, which is a, is a negative word at Amazon, uh, of this platform. Otherwise, it was going to prove to be uh, a challenge scalability-wise. Well, so when this happened, it it really raised raised the awareness because every Sev one every COE goes to Jeff's desk. <laughs> so when it gets to Jeff and Jeff sees the dollars and Jeff understands that it wasn't just internal staff that was impacted, but it was sellers, vendors, and buyers, then it's the question mark email comes like, why did we allow this to happen? And so then we got the direct visibility, which got us kind of that awareness to say, okay, now we can actually invest in, in scaling this platform out. So over the next two years with the, the engineer who became that manager, we deprecated that platform and they completely built a, a brand new system. And the precursor was that failure. That's why we were able to do it. I'm curious, you mentioned um, that refactoring is a bad word at Amazon. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, uh, if if nobody wants to hear that something was was bad, and, and and I don't mean it like you're in the process and you're 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 coding and and you're refactoring as you go, or let's just say that you're you're in, uh, developing an incremental feature or going in to fix a bug and and you see something that's not right and so you correct it. I mean that's my I mean, low level technical debt and, and refactoring. But anytime you'd bring up that an entire app or entire platform or something that's mission critical needed to be refactored, it just scared the living daylights out of everybody. And I think it was more because why? They would ask why. Um, and a lot of us, we would be somewhat on the tech side because it's poor quality code or this is an antiquated um, library and we just want to upgrade it or we've, we've got a monolith, so we want to decouple, we want to you know, go more microservices. And the point would come back to us. And, and this is something that I've brought here and that's how does this benefit the customer? So if we, and, and I love this and I hated it, if we couldn't translate why the refactoring brought value back to the customer, then it was not something that we would prioritize. I had that with the help platform. My help platform was entirely homegrown. The editorial platform was based off a tree structure. We had orphan records everywhere. 
the tree was not sustainable in, in terms of all the different translations that we had to have on help content and all the different actual marketplaces that were deployed globally. But it worked and, and it worked really well. I mean, we cached pretty much all the text and the latency, even at like two nines in China was 400 milliseconds. So when you're going to say, oh, it's going to fall over, they're like, yeah, you're not proving it because, <laughs> you know, someone clicks on help and they're getting that topic within 400 milliseconds, your platform's fine. And if you have orphan records, you can solve that problem without having to invest in it. And so they just never did, even though we knew it was kind of a ticking time bomb. And, you know, we just kept doing what we needed to do to refactor on the fly, to tweak it and make sure that it continued to perform. It's basically still the same application that it was there, you know, seven, eight years ago. It's just been incrementally improved. I love it though. And that's the, that's one of the disciplines that I've been picking up on, you know, lately as we, as we grow Leaderbit's platform is (laughs) I, we, I took the uh, Amazon narrative thing and I said, we have to do a narrative of the feature and how it brings value to the customer. And it like shocked. We have like, we have a smaller team, but the first two, three weeks were really hard. (laughs) Yeah, It was really hard because we had to change how everybody thought of, Oh, let's just go create these let's create these pivotal stories and we just do these pivotal stories and we need to do this, we need to do that. And we have like 75 things. And I look back and like the customer doesn't need, like you, you'll work for six months and the customer won't see one change. Exactly. It's like, that doesn't, that doesn't fly. Like we can't, we don't, we can't afford financially to do that. Like the only things we can work on are things that directly bring value to the customer. And then yep. everything else has to go, go back. You know? Yeah, there's a, uh, I don't know if you're reading it, but there's a, it's uh think like Amazon 15 and a half right. ways to um, deliver like Amazon. Um, I read almost every Amazon book. I see you've got like the everything store book. Yeah. yeah. Out there. yeah. <laughs> um, I read everything that comes out and everybody's always like, why do you read it? You work there. And I go, because it's just like reverse inspiration. I lived it, but sometimes you need that refresher. And, and a lot of times I read it because I want to give it to other folks to read just so that they get some ideas and see the way that we work. And the PRFAQ process, which you're, which you're kind of discussing there, was always important. It was treat a launch as if it was a press release by the Associated Press. And you're explaining in a very short-term article exactly what benefit you're providing. And then work backwards from that. Tell me all the great things that they're going to get. Give me all the data points. Give me the value back. Build your frequently asked questions so that when you go present that to a group, the people who are reading it know exactly why you're doing it and exactly what they're going to get from the delivery of this platform. So it is super painful, but incredibly valuable. And the companies that do it and they get over the hump, those are the companies that get the rewards. And then you see them in the future and they're much bigger and larger. And then everyone's like, what do you do? And you tell them what they do and they go, that's amazing. And they go back and they do nothing. Exactly. (laughs) Like, that's so great. Why do you read the 50 things? It's because you can't list them off right now. You can't list all 50 off the top of your head. We're humans. We're like limited by our our memory. And so you just have to be in this environment where you're constantly keeping it in front of you. Yeah. And the narrative culture is great. I've I've personally, you know, I've never been a fan of PowerPoint. I always felt that PowerPoint serves a purpose but from from what we do as technologists i never i never got it um because a lot of times i mean you and i've been in these all where you're looking at a powerpoint presentation and your speaker's just kind of reading the powerpoint presentation it's like just give me the narrative i'd rather read i'd rather have the chance to highlight and ask questions and all that kind of stuff 
and and yeah, you you go through that. We we went through three year planning. We went through many levels of operational planning. But at the end of the day, we knew exactly what we were going to do. We knew exactly what the priorities were, and that that north star, that level of vision, ambiguity be damned because you knew where you were going. So anybody can navigate that because they could always ask their, their question of what's my end result? What's the end deliverable? I love that. That's a great culture over there. It is. So as, as we wrap up, I'm curious, like if you were to give like one piece of advice to your past self, like what would that be? I, I'll go back to the, the reference that I said uh, about myself and that's having the patience to bring people along with your vision. I'm, I'm a problem solver. We all are. That's why we got into this. We like the challenge of having to you know, deal with a problem and engineer a solution. But through experience, you get that ability to just kind of... It's like flashcards when you were a kid. You get the problem, you immediately know what the solution is. And there's a whole lot more you can do as a leader, especially when you know that solution and then you break it down into these you know, little micro chunks um, and very specific milestones that whether your audience is technical or not, um, whether it's your CEO or your board or your actual developers, everybody understand exactly where you're going because that level of influence translates into direct accountability and ownership and being able to deliver. And so I would continue to tell myself that. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think, you know, going back to our conversation about ever perfecting coaching and stuff like that, I don't think I'll ever perfect it. So it's just the constant reminder of, you know, we, you got to bring people along because there's a, there's a lot more strength in numbers and anyone can execute when they really understand exactly how and why you're going to a specific point or how you were able to, um, you know, think about that solution uh, to the problem. So it'll, it'll happen every day with me. <laughs> I know it. So I just got to keep reminding myself. It's like, I'll just get that whole transcript tattooed on myself. So I'll never forget. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the hard part. It's like, you, you know, good stuff. The hard part's like, all right, how do we make sure we keep this in front of us? That's why I like that you keep the books, you keep everything in front of you. Oh yeah. That's good. Yeah. I, I read, I, I read a lot as much as like here. I just, I don't know if you've ever read this. It's Which the one? Paul Harden book. You it's know, not how good you are. It's how good you want to be. Ooh, that's a good one. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really from like a marketing standpoint, but it translates to anything because it just, it's really, you know, the basis of this is the power of the mind. You can really, you can, you can inspire yourself to, to get stuff done. And so, you know, I, I read, I read those speed of trust. Uh, you know, the obstacle is the way. Um, there's a lot of good books like that, especially as as a, as a leader and understanding other people's mentality and how you get the best out of every everyone else. Um, and then I share it. I do all hands meetings and stuff like that. And we talk about these topics as a group. And so we can all learn from each other. That's why I like, we need, that's why I like this type of content. Like these books, yeah. like we need more of them. Like there's never a shortage. It's like, let's just push the best book up and like you get to it, you read it, you get to share with a couple nuggets. And now I love it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.